So Shelly, this is a special episode with guest hosts Bryce Blankenagel and Kimberly Anderson. That's quite the one-two punch, I think. <laughs> yeah, they are a formidable guest couple. And I'm I want to try use... a big word. They are. I don't have anything. Fuck. <laughs> okay, that's they... one syllable. <laughs> <laughs> they are a brainiac combo of gigantuan proportion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're going to need to put on your thinking caps, listeners. This episode is, wow. Yeah. A head scratcher. So basically, looks like Joseph Smith was a big old druggie. No. And uh, maybe even a dealer pusher type. (laughs) Yeah, possibly. Was he also a John? Well, they didn't go into that in this episode, so maybe the next time we have Bryce on, he can dive into that question. (laughs) But, oh, speaking of Bryce, let's throw to him for a quick clip of what's coming up. Evidence suggests a high likelihood that Joseph Smith used psychedelics and other psychoactive plant medicines in his religious and esoteric practices. So, yeah, that's what's uh, in store for us this episode. Also, there's a foom pod at the end. Mm. That's all related to this topic, so should be an interesting one. Put your thinking caps on, people. Do it. Dunce caps off, thinking (laughs) caps on. We're diving in. Be right back. Hello, and welcome to this week's special edition of Latter-day Lesbian. I am your co-host, Kimberly Anderson. And I am the super special co-host for this week's episode of Latter-day Lesbian, Bryce Blankenagel. I want to be a super special co-host. Well, you are a super special co-host because this is a super special episode because Mary and Shelley aren't here. We kicked them off for a week. But I just introduced myself as a co-host. It was implied. Everybody knows <sighs> that you are a super special person, therefore the super special co-host. Okay. I, I felt like I needed to state it to plant my flag on the same ground that you're standing on. Perfect. We've both planted flags. <laughs> And you can take that however you want. I do identify as a lesbian, and I do believe that Bryce identifies as a cisgender heterosexual man. Yeah, that's correct. (laughs) Uh, Put very simply, yes. Yes, That's funny. So Shelly and Mary offered the opportunity to record a very special episode for their break time, which I hope they're enjoying. I'm not sure if they approached me or if they approached you or if they approached either one of us independently and we met in the middle. However, that ended up happening. I am super stoked to have you and me talking about one of your favorite subjects. Yes, my pet project, really. I'm gonna give you a a chance to introduce that and then we'll just jump into it. Okay, so I will discuss kind of how I stumbled upon this concept, the idea, uh, and then we're going to get into it. Okay. You know, I'm the host, researcher, producer, everything of uh, Naked Mormonism, the serialized Mormon history podcast. And I was studying this stuff about uh, the Kirtland Temple dedication ceremony, which is legendary in Mormon circles. Legendary. That's where the babies were standing up and waving handkerchiefs around, and it's it's the Mormon Pentecost. Wait, wait and, a minute. Babies were standing up holding fl- and waving flags? Well, that's, that's part of the lore. That's part of the legendary status of all of it. I haven't heard that part of the lore, but I'm not a deep diver. I'm not a deep track kind of gal. Yeah, this is pretty well-renowned in Mormon history circles as like the pinnacle of Mormon esotericism or Mormon visionary experiences uh, because there was, you know, it, it's a temple dedication, which is supposed to be really amazing and kumbaya and everyone sings praise to the man, whoever that man may be, and they do the Hosanna shout and it's so great. Do, 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 do,
But I was studying the accounts of it and I was like, this sounds like drugs. Uh, so I said that on the podcast and I was uh, sent some material by one of my co-researchers uh, named Cody Nakoni. And he's like, you have no idea what you're stumbling upon. Ooh. Here's some material that you need to review and let's have a conversation. Was this like a Dan Brown kind of a moment where you were looking all of a sudden now for these signs? And Yeah. And I, you know, I was taking the text and flipping it upside down and realizing it said the same thing. It began this process of decoding through this research, Mormon use of psychedelics in the early church. Whoa, let's put the brakes on just for half a second there. Yeah, well, that's what we're here to talk about, right? Yes, (laughs) that is what we're here to talk about. Mormon, alleged, we can't make any claims because neither one of us were there, but that's why you're here. That's why you're the expert that we're asking to shed your further light and knowledge on the subject. Uh, Yeah, and I kind of shy away a bit from the term expert because I try to be a Mormon history communicator, not actually a historian, but I have published a couple of papers on this subject, uh, and this research is going into my forthcoming book as a biography of Joseph Smith examining kind of these more uh, hidden facets as well as criminal aspects of uh, Joseph Smith's empire. So this is just an aspect that needs to be incorporated and discussed, and it's something that has gained a bit of traction in the Mormon history community. Hmm. A researcher presented this subject material back in 2007. His name is Robert Beckstead. He presented it at Sunstone. I know that name. How do I know that name? Uh, He's one of my co-authors, and he has presented at Sunstone a few times on this subject, but his seminal work is Restoration in the Sacred Mushroom. Okay. And that basically lays the blueprints out for what Cody and I came along and built is what we call the Smith Entheogen Theory. The Sacred Mushroom. I want that to be like the name of a head shop in Salt Lake City. (laughs) That would be so good. I would mail order everything, all of my stuff from there. From the sacred Yes. In that Deseret font, sacred, and then like a cool old-timey pointillism style, engraving style mushroom. Yeah, red cap. Absolutely. Red cap, blue cap, whatever it takes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So... Yeah, this is this is all kind of what we're discussing today. And then, you know, Kimberly, you were the moderator for my co-presenter and I at this first ever virtual Sunstone. I was. And I tell you, you guys blew my mind. I know you <laughs> noticed that because it was Zoom and you could see me moderating. Yes. I know you could see my reactions on the screen. I was blown away. And I probably interjected too much as a moderator and gave my two cents. But it was fun. And and holy crap, I had heard none of that information prior to your presentation. So it was as if I was literally a member of the audience coming to it cold. So the things that I hopefully interjected were appropriate. Absolutely. And so that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you come on here because your research, by the way, you don't need a PhD to be a researcher. Correct. You don't need to be formally trained to be a researcher. Correct. Many people write important books that have none of those uh, degrees or, or accreditations. That is correct. So I hope you don't feel like you're selling yourself short because you don't have those things or the floppy hat. Because <laughs> what you're doing may or may not be approved at a higher level institution of thinking and learning. Right. I'm glad you're an amateur researcher, quite frankly. And I'm happy to embrace the title of amateur. Yeah. Or citizen historian. I think the best way to describe myself is a Mormon history communicator, right? Because I take the information, the dense field of Mormon history, and try and communicate it to lay audiences. And, in, you know, that's kind of what, you know, naked Mormonism is. Right. So if I ask you, Kimberly, tell me the difference between William McClellan, William Smith, and William Weinsfelps. They have three different last names? Yeah, right. So instead, uh, 
what I do is say, okay, so tell me the difference between Professor Bill McClellan, uh, Double Dub Phelps, and Crazy Willie Smith. People who listen to my podcast know those names. They know who those people are. They know they have a figure, a version of those people living in their mind that they know are associated with certain stories in Mormon history. That's the interesting thing I find that you do on your podcast is you kind of turn them into a a caricature. Yes. You have to, to make them memorable, right. uh, because people who don't study this stuff, who aren't steeped in the field of Mormon history, uh, the the names don't mean anything. The dates really don't aren't that important when it's like, it's a really significant difference if you're talking about March 28th, 1832, or March 4th, 1832, right? Those are extremely different and important dates, and a lot happens in between those two dates. I can barely remember what I did yesterday. Hey, right, exactly. <laughs> How do you remember all this shit? <laughs> uh, it, passion. Passion drives me. I like that. Oh, by the way, let's just, for a moment, what are we drinking? I, I My favorite is a hazelnut-flavored uh, Seattle's Best Coffee. Uh, so that is what I'm drinking with a little splash of milk. I am also drinking Seattle's Best. Hold on, let me see what really. What yeah. Awesome, awesome. I have the portside blend. Okay, very nice, very nice. It's a nice, nice med- Seattle's Best Medium Roast, a nice, uh, you know, mid-range coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, good good flavor, good body, good heft. But what I've done today for Intersex Awareness Day, yes. I have invented a drink. <gasps> I've invented a drink, and I'm calling it the More Mocha. More Mocha? It's one-third whole milk. Okay. Two-thirds coffee of choice. Okay. And two heaping spoonfuls of Stevens has to be Stevens hot cocoa powder. Because Stevens oh. is the hot, hot cocoa. They're not sponsoring this episode, BTW, and they could if they wanted. <laughs> Missed opportunity, Stevens. Missed opportunity. There's also a version that could be called the Jack Mormoka. You'd have to add a shot of uh, High West whiskey. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay. The High West is made in Park City. Okay, even better. Right? Why are you a therapist? Why aren't you a bartender? That's brilliant. Well, I'm kind of both. Uh, Two different hats can be worn at the same time sometimes. Oh, I got lots of hats. I got a really long hat rack. (laughs) Good, good, good. Uh, So let's just cut to the chase. Uh, All right. I don't even know how to set this up. You gave kind of a background about the Nauvoo and the babies with the hankies waving and all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. if you just want to dive, go for it. So I was interested with how this all came about, right? So if I'm reading all this stuff about the Kirtland Temple that looks like drugs, then how does this come about? What is the context for which uh, this would make sense? Yeah, what is the context that makes that make sense? Right, right, right. (laughs) And and really, like, the first place that people go to when trying to understand the mindset of the early 19th century Americans and the Mormons specifically is to magic and occult practices. Okay, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. That is not the first place I was told I could go. Well, of course not, because no no person will give you the information that you need to overthrow them. So the idea that magic is where Mormonism really started is deeply enmeshed in the community of Mormon history today. It's generally agreed upon that magic and occult traditions played some sort of role in early Mormonism. Historians will bicker and argue about to what extent certain things come from magic and esoteric practices, but the argument about whether or not there is a magic influence there, that's no longer a question. 
and even B.H. Roberts recognized this uh, in the very early 20th century. We love B.H. Roberts. Yeah, exactly. He said, indeed, it is scarcely conceivable how one could live in New England at this time and not have shared such beliefs. Talking about these magic and esoteric practices. So that would be like being in New York and not being a Yankees fan. That's correct. Or being in Seattle and not even knowing what the Seahawks are. The Sea Chickens? <laughs> So that's within this magic context. Then the questions also come into play. What plant medicines were probably being used in these magic traditions? Because there are myriad plants that we are well aware of in our modern pharmacology that provide different psychoactive experiences. And that can be anything from caffeine to methamphetamine to cocaine to, uh, you know, the horny goat weed that you get in, you know, $2 pills at the gas station, right? All of these plants have different psychoactive profiles. Which gas station are we talking about? It's like all of them that are in any rural American town. Horny goat weed? Yeah. Hmm. Continue, please. So listeners should know I used to be a truck driver. Uh, <laughs> and then I started studying Mormon history. <laughs> I didn't know you were a trucker. This is actually the best fucking interview ever because I'm learning everything about you <laughs> that I didn't know that I wanted to know. <laughs> Bryce is a trucker. Long haul? Local? That's right. That's right. Okay, back to Joe and the entheogenic journey. Uh, anyway, so we got to look into these magic traditions, as well as herbal remedies of the time. And when you begin to search for herbal remedy books from the Enlightenment era on, as well as occult books, there's a massive overlap in all of these books. What date would the Enlightenment era be? Enlightenment period is a, it begins in about the late 1400s and kicks off into the mid to late 1500s. That's the the early Enlightenment, early Renaissance kind of period. Okay, gotcha. So you're going you're going back several hundred years at this yeah, point. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and so uh, because we. <laughs> Thanks to the printing press being, you know, invented in the late 1400s. Thank you, Gutenberg. Yeah. Thanks to the Gutenberg printing press and all of the evolutions beyond that, getting into the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, we begin to have lots of copies of medical books and of occult traditions and of botanical herbal remedy books. Just a, a lot of these different books that are of the category of nonfiction. When we look into the pages of these books, we find replete throughout all of them recipes, and we find directions on where to find these plants. And we find some of them even have like color picture plates. Really? Yeah. In these 18th, 19th century books that somebody had to go back by hand after the plate was printed and paint every single page. Hand color them in. Yeah. Let's talk about some of these books, right? So the Wesley brothers founded Methodism in Europe in the early to mid 1700s. And John Wesley wrote a botanical physician book called Primitive Physic. And it includes over a hundred different recipes to a hundred different ailments. The recipe, exactly how to make it, what the name of the certain plant is, that represents the active ingredients in it. Okay. And a lot of them are mixed with oils or mixed with alcohols or mixed with, you know, hot water or boiled down or whatever. So these books contain very basic kitchen chemistry, basically, that frontier people needed to survive because 
when you're settling in frontier America, sure, you can learn about how to live off of the land from the natives. But when are they going to tell you that when you're in the process of, you know, killing them and removing them to different lands? Actively eliminating their society via systemic genocide? Probably never. Yeah. So they're probably not going to be very excited to share that information with you, even if you do give them the time and opportunity to share that information. So that information largely in early America came from Europe instead of from Native American cultures, which isn't to say that Native American medicine was completely absent from the American frontier cultures. If not for Native American medicine, we would have a lot more casualties from the Civil War and from various Native American wars uh, and from the Revolutionary War. Uh, it's, it's because of Native American medicine that we survived, that white people survived, ironically. To kill them, right, to eliminate their society. To kill them off and to remove them to smaller and smaller reservations. Right. But all of the written information that we have from all of this, most of it comes from Europe. And European explorers coming to America, doing their field research, and then going back to France or to Germany or to Britain— and publishing their work, which eventually would then make its way across the Atlantic to the American colonies and the early American states. So I'm getting the impression that having a book like this would not be seen as taboo or shameful. Of course not, no. Or out of the ordinary. In fact, you may be looked at as a valuable member of your company or your community if you had a book like this and the knowledge to implement the instructions. Absolutely. And when you're settling in the wild west, in the western wilderness, you needed to know what you could pick up from the forest floor that would uh, provide pain relief or would taste good in stew or wouldn't kill your kids if they'd try and eat it while you're out foraging. And, you know, the Smiths, they're collecting ginseng and crystallizing it and going bankrupt because of the business deal fell through. They're, you know, running a cake and beer shop in the summers. I see another merchandising opportunity, Smith's Cake and Beer Shop. Uh, so the Smiths are living off the land. And having these books makes you a valuable member of the community if you are able to use them, if you're able to understand them, right? And these are the explicitly uh, physician books. These are the herbal remedy books that are created for medicine, right? So John Wesley wrote Primitive Physic in the 1740s. There's Medicina Britannica, written by Thomas Short in the 1740s as well. There's The History of Drugs by Pierre Pomme in the uh, 1700s as well. And these books are all making their ways in different degrees over to America based on how popular they are in Europe and how cheap they can be had. So books that maybe enjoyed a very wide printing but weren't that popular in Europe may be shipped off in bulk to America where it becomes extensively popular. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's there's a very weird uh, market place interplay between Europe and America with these medical uh, treatises. Let's fast forward maybe. So you've got these books. There's this established route of research, returning, printing, coming back to America. The frontier people, the the Wesleyans, they've got their handle on these books. They're using them. They're, you know, an important integral part of the community and society and well-being for frontiers people. That's right. The Smiths undoubtedly were part of that. Absolutely. There's this entire uh, usages of all of these plants, and there are the uh, terms for how they use them. They had their terms for eye drops, that you would infuse the plants into water and use them as eye drops. Uh, some plants you would suffumigate, which means to smoke them. Ooh. Other plants that you would place into a poultice or a salve. Some of these you would put into a tincture or a potion of some kind. So... This is all to basically set the stage for witches' brews, 
And is this as common as a CVS or a 7-Eleven on every corner, a pharmacy in every corner? Yeah, well, most groceries had these. Like the term grocer, that used to mean the local store that had everything that you needed. And most of them had the components for these tinctures and for these plant remedies, or they had them ready-made. I hate to pause the conversation here, but we need to take a break. We'll be right back. So you had the book, you had the grocery store where you could go get your goodies, and then you go home and and do your little potion making. Exactly. So then it's no wonder that the cultural concept we see of a witch brewing Eye of Newt and cow's tongue in a big pot came from, right? Right. There's the somewhat common now understanding that the concept of a witch riding her broom is euphemistic for putting a psychoactive ointment on the tip of the broom handle and inserting it intravaginally, which is uh, a very quick way to get those plant medicines into your bloodstream. And then you would go flying through the night sky. Okay, so this is interesting. The witch's broom, you would put your medicine on the tip of the broom and then you would insert it. And also anally, right? Brigham Young loved his enemas. I wondered when we were going to queer this up. (laughs) So uh, basically, any way that you can get the plants into your bloodstream, you're going to feel the effects of it. And the quicker you can get it in uh, to your bloodstream or the more potent you can get into your bloodstream, the greater the extent of the experience is going to be. Also, you can do certain things that will excite the experience, such as fasting and meditation. Uh, you're taking these plants uh, on an empty stomach, you're going to feel the effects extensively more than you would as opposed to a full stomach. If you're meditating, you're preparing yourself mentally for these experiences. You're going to experience something uh, far more extensive and expansive than you would if you don't prepare yourself for it mentally. Yeah. If you're drinking a glass of wine while you're making dinner, it feels a lot different than the glass of wine you drink with dinner. Right. And many people would have that experience of knowing what drinking alcohol would be like on an empty stomach versus a full stomach. And notably as well, like the earliest practices we have in Mormonism are sacrament and fasting. Wow. Those predate polygamy. Those predate the endowment. Those predate the stratification of the church hierarchy and the presidency in the Quorum of Apostles and the Quorums of the Seventy and the Aaronic versus Melchizedek priesthood. The sacrament even predates the story of the first vision. That is the earliest stuff we have. Here's me now putting two and two together. Fasting, meetings, fervor, essentially— and then the sacramental wine, are we sure uh, how much they drank when they were drinking the sacramental wine after fasting? It varied. It varied from time to time and from practice to practice, right? So in the very early church, one of Joseph's earliest revelations was stating, uh, you know, he was going out trying to get wine for the sacraments. And he returned with a handy-dandy new revelation saying that uh, the wine should be wine of your own make. And then that was later captured in his word of wisdom by which we all abide. Section 89. Right. That wine of your own make is okay, right? Uh, As well as mild drinks of barley and every herb in the season thereof. Uh, So these ideas of the sacramental wine being of Joseph's own make— 
are ensconced in two of his earliest revelations dealing with the sacrament. Okay. So to wrap kind of all of these concepts together, right, we have kind of this rogue industry of local people in the neighborhood making their own plant medicines, making their own alcohols and liquors, and making a market for these things. And we know that the Smiths, uh, the Smith family trafficked in these plants, uh, in beer and in wine and in crystallized ginseng. We know that they were, you know, collecting these things from the forest and making products out of them and selling them. And we also know that Joseph Smith in his early career was surrounded by people who were highly steeped in magic and occult traditions. And many of these magic and occult books have entire sections on herbal remedies. And many of those herbal remedies include modern day psychedelics. Oh my gosh. So it's just by transitive property, we get to the point that if Joseph Smith is familiar with magic practices and using seer stones and divining rods, he's also familiar with magic mushrooms. It's incredulous to think about this. It's so far out of what we were taught as young Mormon youth, even as adults. Yes. This is so far out of the box for us through the 20th, 20th and 21st century lens to look back on that. But back in the day, 1830, this is run-of-the-mill, common, everyday stuff that everyone had access to and no one felt bad about. That's the impression I'm getting. Yeah, these things have been lost over generations. But by reading these books, by understanding the culture of the people who did read these books— you know, the veil can begin to drop from our eyes and we can see through the lens of historical communication what these people were interested in and what they were doing and how their expertise could be used by somebody who is Joseph Smith, who is looking for self-aggrandizement. And there are many other aspects of this that we could get into that are possibly a little more controversial. Um, well, and I, I kind of think that maybe there are a lot of listeners that might be thinking, all right, Bryce, get to it. I mean, we know you know your shit, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Where is a smoking gun? Right. I want to see a daguerreotype of Joseph Smith lighting up a doobie. Oh, man, me too. Me too. I want it so bad. Ugh. You're not going to find it, though. How wonderful would that be? Right. Well, so all of this context is necessary because these magic practitioners code their recipes in stories, in allegory. They use stories in order to tell what is going on, in order to tell what they are using. And Joseph Smith encoded those things in the Book of Mormon in the first or in the visions of Nephi and Lehi that he learned from his mother and father. So uh, one of our, you know, our strongest pieces of evidence is the visions that Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mac Smith had perfectly describe psychedelics. They were getting down. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, I want to read from Lucy Mac Smith's dream, right? Because historians talk about Joseph Sr.'s dream. They very rarely talk about Lucy's dream that she recorded. Oh, let's give the lady some credit. Come on through, Lucy. Exactly. And to be fair, she recorded five of Joseph Sr.'s seven visions that he had. Uh, but she was recording these things 10 years after he died, or sorry, four years after he died, but still. Relatively fresh. Yeah, but 40 years after he supposedly had them. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the content of these dreams, this is all Lucy, right? Like this is all her that she tells us about. Yeah, okay. So uh, this is from our paper on, on the matter here. At least three years before her husband's two dreams in 1811 uh, and 12 years before her son's first vision is when Lucy Smith had her own remarkable vision. 
Joseph Sr. had just informed Lucy it was best for her to desist attending the Methodist church because his father and older brother were very displeased. Lucy related that after praying for some time, she fell asleep and had the following dream, in which she saw trees that were very beautiful. They were well-proportioned and towered with majestic beauty to a great height. I saw one of them was surrounded with a bright belt that shone like burnished gold, but far more brilliantly. And why that's important is because the plants are the central focus of hers and Joseph Sr.'s dreams. The tree of life. The tree of life. That is the central focus of the dream. All of the details with the iron rod and the river and the great and spacious building, those are all ancillary uh, contextual details. The tree itself, the plant, is the focus of the visions. So she talked about a tree that was beautiful and it spread its branches, that towered, it was well-proportioned, like she was seeing fractals or something. Well, and we hear lots of stories of people tripping on LSD that talk about the plants talking to them. Yes. So we have a few candidates. Um, Amanita muscaria is a possible candidate entheogen. Uh, and these are the specific plant medicines that we believe uh, are most likely to have been used. Amanita muscaria is a plant that everybody knows. You may not know the name, but you know this plant. This is the quintessential toadstool red cap mushroom with white spots. This is the mushroom that everybody envisions when they hear the term mushroom. Right. Red cap with white spots. That is the fly agaric or Amanita muscaria. Holy grail of mushrooms? Yeah. Well, and one thing about it is unless you are careful with it, it can be very dangerous. Uh, so, Because ibotenic acid, if you don't give the mushroom long enough to dry, it doesn't convert over into muscamol. And ibotenic acid is pretty damn dangerous, actually, uh, whereas muscamol is a lot less dangerous. It, it's much less likely to cause you to go into convulsions. We don't want that. We don't want that, right? So one thing about a lot of these plants is they can cause that to happen. And if you take them for a long enough period of time or you take too high of dosages, they can cause the tips of your fingers to fall off. They can cause you to go completely catatonic for the space of two to three days. These are some dangerous plants. These are dangerous. You need to know what you're doing with these things, which provides the reasoning behind why these herbal remedy books are so valuable, because they would teach you the basic kitchen chemistry. Yeah, critical. Yeah, to make it so you can take these things and enjoy the medicinal properties of them without them fucking killing you, <laughs> which is a real danger with a lot of them. Right. So Datura is a member of the nightshade family. And the nightshades are, you know, tomatoes and potatoes and over 2,500 different plants. But this is specifically, this is known as Jimson weed or Jamestown weed. If you Google, a, you know, a picture of Datura, you will see the white trumpet-shaped uh, flowers, white or purple trumpet-shaped flowers. You'll see the little tiny seed pods, the spiky seed pods that turn white and shed their seeds. Uh, you will see exactly what we're talking about here. And that's, it was perfectly captured in Joseph Sr.'s dream uh, that Lucy recorded that I think she was coding that information for later readers. That's yet one more of these possible candidate entheogens. Do we look at it with our eyes as being coded and they back then would not have thought it to be coded? I don't think that they would have considered the concept of coding the way that we do today of like, there's a meaning that I'm missing here. Every story, every allegory has essentially three meanings. There's 
the the primary level meaning, and that is the story. Uh, Nephi prays to God, and then he sees a vision of a tree uh, and a big building and an iron rod. There's the secondary meaning of what is, are the moral implications of this, and what is really being said about what's the real commentary on the humanity and the human condition that's being uh, said in this. And then the third level is what's very, very specific detailed information is this specific author trying to pass to me through code? You're not an amateur researcher, Bryce. I'll just say I'm hyper-specialized in, in this. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. And you can talk to any artist. Like, that's one of the artist's favorite things is to hear people's interpretation of the meanings of their art. Right. And there's usually the surface level that people see, oh, that is a pretty mountainscape. I like the colors. I like the colors. Oh, that's an interesting shape that you put there. Where'd you get your frames? <laughs> I've exhibited many, many, many times, and nothing insults me more than when people say, where'd you get your frames? Yes, <laughs> you know. There are things in between those four sides of the frame that I really want you to consider. <laughs> Sorry, that's an aside. So yeah, there's the surface level, and then there's the secondary level where you're like, there's a deeper message here that I'm trying to convey, whether it's what I'm portraying in the fore and background, right. whether it's the subject matter or what is uh, you know the feature of this picture, this piece of art. And then there's the tertiary meaning deeper than all of that, that directly inspired them to create this specific piece of art. Right. You appreciate that, Kimberly. You understand what that means, those three levels of meaning. Absolutely, I do. So to answer your question, the way that we understand coded messages is, um, I think, very simplistic compared to how real practitioners of magic and occult and these esoteric knowledges. Because we have no context. We have no lived experience for this. Because everything is spoon-fed to us in tweets and sound bites. Everything is boiled down to be as simplistic as possible today. Yeah. Which is why when somebody says, hey, do you want to come on a podcast and talk about Joseph Smith using drugs in the early <laughs> church? I'm like, well, let me give you three hours of context before we actually get to the evidence. Right. So people like the Smiths were part of the low caste of society. They were a rags family. They were incredibly destitute their entire lives. Joseph Sr. spent 30 days in debtor's prison because uh, he couldn't pay a $1,000 land deed bill. <laughs> okay. The Smiths were destitute from their earliest days, and therefore the drugs that they used were looked down upon by the more educated society, even though the more educated society were similarly using a lot of these same drugs or more refined versions of them. So we've got our Saks Fifth Avenue versus our Walmart. Right. And it can be the same stuff, just more refined versions of it. Gotcha. In the very early days of the Smith family, and this is late 1820s, rising to prominence with the gold Bible speculation, as it was understood, certain people would approach the house and say, is this a visionary home? They would come up to it and they would ask that? Well, that's the thing is you hear stories around town of like this one family who they got the good stuff. Uh, you you go and knock on the door, right? <laughs> okay. They're looking for a dealer. That's what they're doing. So when a person says, is this a visionary household? That's essentially asking, are you someone who 
you know, deals or not deals in, but understands the visionary world, right? Okay. And this is also captured within the context of the three witnesses viewing the plates through the eyes of faith, through the visionary eye. Right. They're seeing these things in a world that is not the physical world around us, right? And that caused a huge division in the early church when Martin Harris said that he saw the plates through the spiritual eyes and not the natural eyes, and that he saw them the way that you see a city through a mountain, and not like you see that pencil case on the desk. So we've made kind of a, you know, roughly solid connection between psychedelic use and Lucy Mack and her husband, Joseph Sr. Yeah. Sounds to me like there's some sort of connection of sorts to uh, hallucinogenic drug use to Joseph Smith and other members of the First Presidency at the early church formation. Yeah, absolutely. I said this a little bit earlier, but like the earliest practices and revelations that we have in the church are to do with sacraments. Sacraments and fasting, yeah. And wine of your own make. Right. Like those are the earliest revelations that we have. So when we're talking about the early church, there were certain people who made accusations and were curious about what was going on in the early church. And in the early church, it was a lot different than the practices that we see today. The church today is the McDonald's of Christianity, right? (laughs) You go anywhere in the world and you know exactly what you're going to get. You know the exact flavor of it. You know, over a billion served. Uh, You know exactly what it is. You know exactly how the practice is going to go. Okay, that's funny. Angel Moroni and the Golden Arches. You even know the layout of the chapel when you go anywhere else in the world, right? I know where the library is. I know where the back door is. Exactly. The early church under Joseph Smith was wacky, and it was fun, and it was charismatic, and it was exciting. And the, the Mormons didn't practice in, you know, a big church They held small local congregations, and one of these local congregations was the Isaac Morley Farm. Anyone who doesn't know uh, who Isaac Morley is, he was the earliest implementer of Mormon communism, this concept of uh, the United Firm and uh, the Mormons living in common stock. Isaac Morley owned a farm that had a bunch of cabins that people lived on, including the Smith family, Joseph Smith and Emma. This is where some of the earliest church meetings happened in the Kirland era church. Kind of a commune. It was a commune. It was a hippie commune. I got psychedelics. I got religion. Yeah. And they were in the habit of going into the schoolhouse and putting up blankets in front of the windows to shut out the light. And then they would engage in the sacramental ritual, and then they would invite people back in afterwards. And and people reported on this. Uh, The Cleveland Herald and Gazette reported, quote, large Mormon meetings continued for successive days. They were held, earnest preachings and alarming exhortations were given, swoons, trances, jerkings, and visions were frequent. A uh, physician uh, who was a non-Mormon who lived in Kirtland at the time wanted to see what was going on in these camp meetings, in these revivals, these closed-door sweat lodge revivals, basically. (laughs) He's checking it out. And he snuck in to see if the wine was medicated. And he tried to steal a bottle, quote-unquote, to see if it were drugged or not. And that's a contemporary accusation that the sacramental wine was drugged. And that's, that's a pretty notable detail. Interesting. So that was floating around greater than that reporter would have been able to write in the newspaper. Yeah, exactly. So that in and of itself is quite notable. 
And I want to read a little bit more of Moss's statement. He said, I've attended the meetings of Mr. Morley's. In the house, I have seen young men and women seemingly unconscious. And the folks said they had lain so for two days and they were there on their beds. So nobody tried to prevent us looking at them, but we were not allowed to go into the room. According to Moss, he took what was called the sacrament at Isaac Morley's, and he describes what the actual thing looked like. He said, they were in the habit of turning everybody out of the door when they partook of the bread and wine, putting blankets up at the windows, shutting off the sight from without. Then later, they opened the door and let us come in again. The poorhouse in Portage County, Ohio, where there were half a dozen insane and idiotic persons, was the best comparison of anything to the scene that night. <laughs> So he says explicitly that people are laying in trances for days at a time, and the local insane asylum is the best analog of what I saw go on in that drug-induced meeting. And this echoes some of the adverse side effects of many of the drugs that you spoke about earlier. Certainly. Well, and common at this time were opium dens. And the idea of like, you know, I have a pipe dream. Uh, That's the opium pipe, right? (sighs) People would lay in opium-induced trances for days at a time and basically live in these opium houses. Opium houses uh, and opium dens, like people need a place to do drugs. And this Isaac Morley farm, this early commune, is the most reasonable place that I can put my finger as the early Mormon drug houses. Interesting. And there are accounts of that being the case. Yeah. And also experimentation with various practices. Because if you're going to have a group of people, however large that group is, uh, utilizing these psychoactive chemicals, you're going to need somebody to direct them. You need a shaman or a shaw person. Thank you. Gender neutral language. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yes. And the term is extremely old. And that's why I used the shaman first and then changed it to shaw person. Right. Because it's a very, very old term, but we we need to modernize these things, right? Well, in Native American tradition, the the shaman often was a third gender or a transgender person. Exactly. And that's really tough to deal with because like it's our interpretation of that word. It's been colonialized. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Weird how every Everything we're discussing today is very colonialized. Yeah. But needless to say, like, you need a person who is your spirit guide who will take you by the hand and walk you through this experience. And who would that have been? That would have been Joseph. Okay. He was practicing these things. He was helping people experience the highs that he wanted them to experience because a person under a, you know, it was termed a hypnotic trance at the time. A person under that kind of trance-like state, uh, we call it an altered state of consciousness today, very broadly speaking, they can be very suggestible. They can do things that otherwise they might not do. They can see and experience things that are not actually there by simple virtue of you telling them what you see, and then they will share that hallucination, whether you see it or not. Mm. So this is Joseph's early practices, he is guiding people through their personal revelations, through their personal visions. And he slowly expands the group of people who experience this. And he creates hyper-exclusive groups of the dudes that get to experience these things because the authority with the church has to remain with the men, of course. So early on, he creates the School of the Elders and the School of the Prophets, which is an exclusive group that is committed to studying these deeper fields of esoteric knowledge and these lecture series and uh, sitting in a, a small room with a whole bunch of guys smoking their pipes for hours and hours and hours 
Some of their meetings are going until two or three in the morning where people are seeing visions all night. What are they smoking? Straight tobacco? Yeah, obviously smoking tobacco and very likely cannabis as well. I think cannabis is an overlooked potential uh, psychoactive plant that was used at the time. Certainly would be easy to cultivate and grow and control it rather than scouring through the forest. Well, and it grows everywhere, right? Like strains of cannabis grow everywhere. It's an extremely adaptable plant. So, yeah. Right. But that's my point. You can cultivate this as a crop and in a controlled plot next to your house instead of tromping through the woods looking for the red cap mushroom. That's exactly right. So that brings us to the word of wisdom. And the word of wisdom is super important because Eber D. Howe uh, wrote the first full book-length anti-Mormon book. It's called Mormonism Unveiled. It was published in 1834, just four years after the church started, three years after Joseph got to Kirtland and was making a name for himself in Ohio. And he talks about the word of wisdom. And he basically attributes the word of wisdom and the language within it to Joseph Smith's counselor in the presidency, who was a guy by the name of Frederick G. Williams. Frederick G. Williams was one of these Thompsonian herbal physicians. Okay, now we're getting a connection. And he was Joseph Smith's left-hand man until Nauvoo when... Frederick G. Williams died in his 50s. It was Joseph Smith. His right-hand man was Sidney Rigdon. His left-hand man was Frederick G. Williams. Gotcha. So Eber D. Howe in Mormonism Unveiled attributes the language in the Word of Wisdom to Frederick G. Williams, who was operating as scribe for Joseph Smith. (laughs) So in the Word of Wisdom, it says, and again, verily, I say unto you, all wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Every herb in the season thereof and every fruit in the season thereof, all these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. And some of the listeners probably were mouthing that along, saying it with me because you've memorized it. I'm going to go to LDS.org and look it up right now. Absolutely. Uh, DNC 89, right? Like it's it's a quintessential Mormon revelation. Absolutely. This is what Eber D. House says about it. We are next told that every wholesome herb God ordained for the use of man, with two exclamation points. And we should infer that the writer or the recording angel, meaning Frederick G. Williams, had been inducted into the modern use of herbs by the celebrated Dr. Frederick G. Williams in Kurland. F.G. Williams is a revised quack well known in this vicinity by his herbarium on either side of his house. (laughs) So he even talks about the herbarium on either side of Williams's house. And then he goes on to say, but whether he claims protection by right of letters, patent from the general government, meaning the actual herbal remedies themselves, or by communion with spirits from other worlds, we are not authorized to determine. Whoa. So I read that as Hal's little way of jabbing at him. Like, these guys, they're just fucking high. That's how I interpret what he is saying. Um, communion with the spirits from other worlds right. is what brought about the language within the word of wisdom, every herb in the season thereof. I feel like I should be drinking that dirty martini while we're talking about this. I think that would be a wonderful <laughs> idea. <laughs> hey, Bryce, I'm going to pause us here and uh, take a break. We'll be right back. This is amazing. So even the contemporary, the dude that knows how to do the real practice of herbalism and has the herbariums on both sides of his place, 
he's calling out the Mormons? No. So that's the guy. That's Frederick G. Williams, who is the left-hand man of Joseph Smith. Oh, he is helping the Mormon. He is one of the Mormons. Yes. The guy who wrote the first anti-Mormon expose called that guy out. Okay. Thank you. I never did well in seminary. Uh, How is attributing the word of wisdom to this herbal physician? That's Joe's left-hand man. And that's super important because this guy was super close to Joe for Joe's entire ministry. Was he scribing DNC? Do you know? Was he the the writer downer, the note taker? He wrote a lot of the revelations for DNC. He also worked as a printer and editor for the church's periodical in Kirtland. He was one of Joe's propaganda ministers. Okay. So all of this evolves into the Kirtland Temple dedication ceremony. And these these practices, uh, Joe tries to keep a rein on them to try and keep them within his own control as the go-to Shaw person for the Mormons to basically get the approved of version of the visions and personal revelations. Mm, And eventually he creates all sorts of leadership groups that are allowed to go to these hyper-secret meetings. He creates a test where uh, in order to know a true spirit from a familiar spirit, you have to shake its hand. Shake their hand. And that's you know one way to help ground a person when they are in a very deep state of altered consciousness is uh, a physical touch to tether them back to reality. Also a DBT skill. A DBT skill? Dialectical behavior therapy to con- connect yourself to the real world. You want to exercise your sensation of touch. What can you touch right. that helps your brain come back into the here and now? Right, exactly. There is real power in a person's touch that way. Yeah. And a person who you revere as the, the holy prophet of God who is guiding you on this mystical journey, he's telling you to calm down and that you're going to see the face of God, that you're going to see these incredible manifestations, that you're going to uh, see angels You're going to see gold plates. You're going to experience all of the rushing mighty wind. You're going to experience the quickening of the spirit. More often than not, if he's creating the conducive set and setting, and there's a dosage in the sacrament, you have the three component pieces to a transcendent spiritual experience. Dose, set, and setting. Because I would like to see some visions of set spirits. <laughs> right. Well, and why don't we take this opportunity to talk about, like, what does this say about Joseph Smith if the dude is drugging the Mormons? What would it say about Joseph Smith? I guess it would depend on if he was selling them these things. I think that Joseph Smith was a charlatan and a bigot. Oh, I'm digging a really deep hole for a therapist that works within the Mormon community to be you know, pontificating on how I feel about Joseph Smith. And so I need to be very careful. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but quite frankly, I think he was manipulative and he took advantage certainly of anybody within a position that he could take advantage of in any capacity to further his own agenda He never turned down a chance to further his own financial gain or status or wiggle out of a legal uh, conundrum that he may have been facing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if some of this was part of just building up his own stature and reputation, possibly creating a myth and a legend and an icon that they could not turn away from or deny through these visions and these things that they would experience. Well, Joe led me through a spiritual experience. He led me to the literal promised land within my own psychedelic experience. I now am owing him a great deal of allegiance, and I may bring other people into it to experience the same thing. This, as an added tool into that toolbox, is very important. And the power dynamic that that creates, when Joseph holds the keys to the kingdom of God. Eternal salvation, yeah. In a very literal sense, that he has, you know, the keys that unlock the mysteries of God. That creates a power dynamic that 
is inherently manipulative, even if what the people are being manipulated into doing isn't anything bad, which it was. And so that is interesting because as a therapist working within the Mormon community, I feel comfortable saying those things. Which is great and important to recognize as a therapist when a person is being manipulative. Is being manipulated, exactly. And you see the power dynamic that that manipulation creates. It's creating a codependent relationship. Exactly. I think it's fair to say that Joseph Smith is a master manipulator of setting up codependent relationships with his parishioners. Right. right. Possibly through the use of uh, entheogens and psychedelic drugs. Right. So then there can also be a third level to this as well. Please. That... Joseph Smith understood that these are the keys that unlock the kingdom of God. Mm. And he just happens to be somebody who thinks everybody should enjoy that. He sees a lot of the problems with the world around him, and he sees where those problems stem from. He sees all of the power dynamics that are created in religion and that everybody should have their own powers of prophecy. And in trying to provide those powers of prophecy to other people, he becomes that which he hates the most, which is a religious tyrant. So this is an esoteric, very forgiving view of Joseph Smith then. Yeah. um, I don't think that those are bipolar propositions. I would make the claim that there is probably more evidence for Joseph Smith being a malicious manipulator than a benevolent manipulator. It depends on what he is looking to do for the person or do for himself. Fair. Depends on your point of view, I suppose. Yes. And what are his selfish motivations? If they truly are just to expand the learning and understanding and the spiritual comprehension of his followers, then in many ways that is benevolent. I see that as an amoral proposition more than anything uh, as an atheist. I don't think that that is an inherently valuable thing to try and expand people's spiritualism. And I see that my worldview has been altered and shaped by understanding the power and use of entheogens. Sure. And their utility. They, They are yet another tool by which to measure the world around us, to understand the world around us. Even if that's only existing inside of our own little skull and it's just really fun to play around in there for a few hours. But it's a way to become more understanding with ourselves. And for a lot of people who use them, it's the way to connect with Gaia, with the earth, with the universe, with God, with fill in the blank, with the spirits, with their ancestors, with fill in the blank. Mm. In the long run, even if that is an experience that is traumatizing or that is unexpected or unconventional or something that the person doesn't initially want— If the person is made more complete or understands something about themselves that they otherwise would not have access to, is the payoff of that experience worth the suffering and possibly traumatization that's required for that experience to happen? So what you're talking about is acceptable collateral damage. I am not putting approval on or disparaging that. I am just saying that these are components that we need to consider when we are evaluating the morality of Shaw people. And my response to that would be consistent, continual consent is never present. I would agree with that. And that is very, very troubling. It's a fascinating, fascinating field. Clearly. If anybody has made it to this point in the interview, they understand that your passion about this is deep and it's real. Yeah. And that you've done a shit ton of research and reading and writing and publishing and presenting. Yes. And also, also, all of that, I should I should have said this at the beginning, is to say 
don't take drug advice from a podcast and don't do drugs because they are illegal. Well, and so that's a good disclaimer. And I might feel the need to follow that with one of my own. I cannot endorse the use of any medical substances, either legal or illegal, ever, that is outside of my scope of practice as a mental health therapist. Yeah. So I cannot uh, endorse uh, or not endorse anything. And working with like psychedelics or even prescription or non-prescription medication is outside my scope of practice. So I would say uh, you get to make your decisions for yourself. Exactly. And this was obviously a crash course 101 in a nutshell, you know, broadcast about this subject. Go to Naked Mormonism and search entheogen. You'll find close to a dozen episodes about this subject, about different facets of it, whether they're presentations that I've done on the subject or they are reading the academic papers that we've written on this or just generally within the context of evidence for this kind of stuff. And this might be a good segue and most certainly gives the LDL listener, more contextual understanding of how in the world dear little Bryce Blankenagle is able to pull out of his hat the most obscure stuff about Mormonism, because (laughs) you do this all day, every day. Yeah. This is literally my day job, Mormon history. Exactly. And you do have a foom pod for us today. Are you ready? So wait a minute. We need to do the cue music. Do you get cue music or do I? You could do it since you're the one offering the foom pod. No, I think you should do it because I don't know why. I, I feel like it feels more accurate to have you do it. Cue music. It's the fucked up Mormon's phrase of the day. All right, Kimberly. Let's hear it. Your fucked up Mormon phrase of the day is psychical narcosis. Psychical narcosis. Can you use it in a sentence, please? Uh, no, because that'll go away. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, this isn't the spelling bee. Psychical gives an air or a pretense of a psychic, uh, you know, in the mind experience, maybe between two individuals. Narcosis. I mean, the d- derivative word is would be nar- narcolepsy. Like, can you be put in a trance? To imitate a false death, possibly drug-induced, the way that we kind of have spoken to a couple times today. I am pulling shit out of my ass in this very moment, and I don't even know if I'm close. You know, I gotta, I gotta give you a buzzer. I'm sorry. It's you have a couple of the component pieces, but it's just not quite there as a whole. Okay, which describes Mormonism quite accurately. <laughs> 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 really all esotericism. Right. Okay, so I'm going to read a quote here. This is from page 65. It says, narcotic intoxication, therefore narcosis is actually not narcolepsy, but narcotic. Okay. Narcotic intoxication is most clearly related to ecstasy in some forms strikingly so. Ecstasy, of course, this incredible heightened state of consciousness. Incredible experience. Never been there. I don't know about that ecstasy. Oh, I'm glad that you do not, because that would be illegal, Kimberly. It is chemical ecstasy, while ecstasy might be termed psychical narcosis. So it's a one-letter definition. Psychical narcosis essentially is ecstasy. It is chemical ecstasy. Chemical ecstasy. Yes, in in italics. Uh, I'm going to finish out the paragraph here. In both, there is isolation of the outer world, anesthesia, hallucination, 
visions, and even catalepsy. And there is absorption of the I, or as some would call it, the id. Ego, yeah. Or the ego, right? In contemplation of the mental pictures. No one so resembles a dervisher in ecstasy as a Bolivian cocoa chewer or an Indian opium smoker. Mm. That was written by the grandson of Joseph Smith, Frederick M. Smith when he was prophet of the RLDS church. Wow. That is his doctoral thesis. No shit. Fred M. Smith, the grandson of Joseph Smith, was a classically trained uh, psychologist, published his PhD in 1918. He became prophet of the church in 1916 of the RLDS church. Prophet president. Prophet president of the RLDS church. At the same time that his cousin, Joseph F. Smith, was prophet of the Salt Lake City Church. Oh, that's fun. And his doctoral thesis is on ecstasy and religious practices, and his drug of choice was peyote. And the entire like first three chapters of this book, the, his PhD thesis, go through the history of peyote uh, and the current social stigmas of it. And then the rest of the book just talks about forms and practices to achieve ecstasy, or as he termed it, chemical ecstasy, also psychical narcosis. Is that a term he coined? I think so. It's in italics and doesn't have a citation. I don't know if he coined it or not, but it is, it's an italicized phrase within his book, Higher Powers of Man. That's fascinating. Was he endorsing it? Was it a purely informational dissertation or was he recommending or prescribing it in some sort? No, he wasn't recommending or prescribing it. He was merely discussing the extent and the various practices that are utilized for people to achieve what he termed as ecstasy. And ecstasy is that transcendent experience, that spiritual experience that a person can acquire by partaking in psychedelics or by all sorts of other ritualistic practices, whether that is breathing exercises, whether that's dancing to exhaustion, fasting and praying, uh, whether that's you know chanting. All of these practices tap into parts of our brain that are the not normal sphere of just our everyday operating experience. It's the bridge between the subconscious and the conscious. And even that is kind of a, a simplistic way of looking at it. Simplistic, yeah. Because it's engaging parts of our mind that are not normally used for our everyday functions. When you're going to the store, when you're going to work and just doing stuff, you're not engaging many, many parts of your brain that are just sitting there idle waiting to be engaged in ritualistic practices create the set and setting for those uh, parts of our mind to be utilized. You add a dosage into those, that can be a catalyst that causes those experiences to accelerate or to be more reliably induced. They're far more extensive ecstatic experiences than if you're just doing these things uh, by breathing exercises or by yoga or by tantric sex. His description leads me to believe uh, that he may have some firsthand knowledge about this through his peyote use. Yeah, peyote was his drug of choice. And this guy was, uh, you know, two decades ahead of the very earliest psychedelic movements. A true visionary. Uh, he was a visionary. And what's interesting, too, is his thesis, when he published it, his advisor didn't want it to be done. Like, he didn't think that it was groundbreaking enough. He didn't think that it was interesting enough, that it was basically just a synopsis of the field of psychology or one small aspect of the field of psychology up to that point, and that he needed to do some actual groundbreaking research. Well, dude was, you know, two decades ahead of his time. Mm. 
That's not respected in his own country. Yeah, it's kind of sad, isn't it? Poor guy. And hey, you know, Fred M is a super controversial figure as well in RLDS history. I think he's really interesting because, I mean, he loved this stuff. He's a stoner. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and his impact on the field of psychedelic studies has yet to be truly realized. Again, a true visionary. Descendant of the prophet of Mormonism. Yeah. Wow. We made it through. How do you feel? I feel great, and I knew you were never going to get that Fumpada because nobody would ever get that, but it was just too good. Unless you were Fred. <laughs> I am not Fred reincarnate, so no, I would not get that reference. Yeah, no, good. If you were, we couldn't be friends. I'm sorry. Dude was an asshole. <laughs> oh, and I don't want to be an asshole, and I am not a dude, lest we forget. Yeah, fair. Wow. So we've made it to the end of kind of a marathon of LDLing a la Kimberly and Bryce. This is a much different flavor. This is kind of what I expected and beyond what I expected. I look forward to seeing how it comes out. (laughs) Well, thank you, Kimberly and Bryce, for that really interesting look into Joseph Smith's potentially nefarious druggy past. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking (laughs) get high, start a religion. Right? Seemed to work for that guy. If this whole podcasting thing doesn't work out for us, (laughs) that's the route I'm taking. Okay. Uh, Everybody check in with Shelly in about 10 years. See what happens. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, I guess, going to wrap up this episode. All right. Thanks to Dan as well at Extension Audio. Thank you for leaving it in, Dan. And everybody, remember, steer clear of those cults because they are no joke. No joke at all. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.